a few days ago, um, one of the aspects that Patricia spoke about was the preciousness of this human life. And just sitting here, I feel like I'm sitting with a really renewed appreciation of this. That over the last month, I have had the opportunity to go and to practice with two of my own teachers. And the first one was Sayada Utejaniya, whom some of you may have met in May when he was here. He's a teacher, uh, comes out of Burma. Um, He's been a teacher of mine for the last few years. And just in June, I had the opportunity to be around him uh, and listening to his dhamma, listening to his uh, pointing to the truth of the way of things. And it was just so rich. I find that he is a teacher for me whom really models how to live a life of Dharma inquiry. You know, a life of Dharma inquiry that's not limited to formal practice, to formal retreat, but how one can use whatever is happening anytime, any place, anywhere, using whatever conditions are present as a means of deepening wisdom and understanding. This was then followed by a retreat with uh, a Tibetan teacher that I practice with. His name is Minjur Rinpoche. And uh, he recently wrote a book called The Joy of Living. And his being exudes this. There is just such a felt sense of joy, of happiness, of what it's like to live when one is not entangled with life, when one is not caught in delusion, hatred, greed. That um, actually somebody you know, his book came out, and it's been quite a popular book. It's, it, it's, it's really doing well. And somebody was saying that, you know, it's probably just the picture of him on the front cover because he just exudes this joy. And, you know, so I just came back out of this time with so much appreciation for the time that we live in that the Dhamma, the teachings of the Dhamma are present. That I have had this opportunity and continue to have this opportunity to practice, to really inquire within my own being. And, you know, when I come home, it's to this place, it's to you, and, you know, I listen to you, and you help me to look, to see, to understand more deeply. And, you know, I hope that you share something of the preciousness of this, that there's many circumstances we can be born into, but here we are with this opportunity. But it can be 
a great quandary. Because as you know, I'm sure, as we sit here with all of the potential that we have as a human being, we also have these deeply ingrained habits that are based in false perception, they're based in ignorance, not seeing clearly. Um, These habits that when we act out of, we perpetuate suffering, we cause harm to ourselves, to others. And, you know, we know that underneath it all, it's not what we want to be doing. And yet, these habits can have such a momentum, can have such force. Uh, These habits can be so unruly, unwieldy, that at times we just feel completely at the mercy of. And so, you know, at times we, we fall into just trying to manipulate our world so that we get some sense of refuge from this, like a moment of calm, a moment of peace. We start trying to find happiness in ways that don't really serve that you know, we, find, we look for the happiness through getting things right, having things be a certain way. Actually, on a retreat that I was sitting in February, I was doing a self-retreat, and I, I was um, up at Karma Choling. It's a, a beautiful retreat center in Vermont. They have some cabins up there. Uh, they're rustic cabins, but I find them just you know, a very simple setting to practice in. And, you know, just, you know, practicing in the way you're practicing here. And then at some point, there was just the scene of this tendency to want to try and manipulate everything to be pleasant, to, you know, really have a nice retreat experience. And then I just had this thought that said, you know, you're never going to make a pleasant little samsara. Um, you know, maybe some of you aren't familiar with samsara, but this—it's this cycle of suffering that comes from this mind that just keeps looking for happiness in misguided ways, that doesn't know where to find it. You know, its intention is wholesome, but it's bound in ignorance, and so you know, we we seek it in misguided ways, and this. It keeps this wheel of suffering in motion, this cycle of samsara. And, you know, that's just not going to be what breaks that cycle. So sometimes we really understand this. But other times we get caught in coping mechanisms. You know, as young children, when we were in the midst of a difficult situation, we learned ways of coping. You know, some of us may have lived through very traumatic things as children, and we didn't know what to do with it. We didn't know how to be with it. We didn't know what could be understood from it. And so we just went into habits of survival, protection, And they were essential. But 
those habits because they weren't based on wisdom. They weren't based on being able to see things as they are. Later, become restrictive. They don't allow us the depths of understanding that is possible. Just an example of this. That, you know, if we maybe are somebody who has a lot of habits of anger, and, you know, we can really dislike being ruled by anger. Actually, this, this reminds me of a dog that I know. I just saw him, and so the memory's kind of there. He, his name is Max, and he is a combination of a pit bull and a bull mastiff. And in my relationship with him, I really started to see the karma that came with life as a pit bull. That there is... <laughs> got to say, sometimes I feel like the pit bull. But <laughs> um, there is this kind of default of aggression. You back him into a corner, and he gets aggressive. And so what he would do is, okay, one day I was walking down the street with him, and he had this desire to eat cow shit. <laughs> Excuse the language that popped up. <laughs> cow poo. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't like that. He, you know, then he'd want to lick me, right? You know, <laughs> wasn't very nice. So anyhow, I didn't want him eating this cow poo. <laughs> and I was getting really quite irritated with him. And so, and I kept telling him, no, no, no. And he was not listening. He would see the poo and he'd just go for it. <laughs> and so then he, you know, he went for it again. And I was really irritated by that. And I slapped him. And when I slapped him, he bit me. He didn't bite me hard. He just, you know, put his mouth around my wrist. And it's, you could see in these situations, it was like it was instinctive. You know, it was so deeply ingrained, the sense of there being no choice. But then what was really interesting was that he would get such strong remorse. He would feel so bad about it. And I was just saying to a friend when I recently saw him and told him about this tendency that he had, I think that Max has lived through his, or he's worked through his pit bull energy. You know, that, that yes, he, there's that tendency there, but he just doesn't let that run him all the time. You know, he, he learns from it. He, he lets the suffering of that be felt. There's some way in which I feel as a dog He's been working with that. And this is what we can do as people, as human beings. It's funny, I started out somewhere and I ended up somewhere different than I intended. And I'm not quite sure where I started out with that. But anyhow, habits. habits. Thank you. (laughs) So we've probably noticed in our own minds, 
that we have these habits and that they have momentum. But that by paying attention, by bringing wise attention, really allowing these habits to come into the light of awareness, understanding can come. Understanding that breaks the momentum of these habits and helps us to see what is happening, how it's happening, that allows an understanding to come that releases the mind from the grip of identification with these habits. The practice that we're doing here is very supportive to this. It's always interesting sitting in the forest refuge because you have people doing all different kinds of practices. (laughs) But the basis of what we're doing here is vipassana, or insight meditation. And this is a wisdom practice. This is a practice that helps give support to the mind to be able to see things clearly, to be able to see things as they are, to be able to see into the nature of reality. The practice that we're doing here brings about a peace that comes not from simple calmness, concentration, tranquility, but a peace that comes from understanding, that allows us to live in accordance with the way of things and not at odds with the way of things. But this is a journey. It's not as if we sit down and suddenly we see clearly because these habits are so strong. They're so near to our response to life. And so it becomes a journey, a journey of awakening, a journey of turning the lights on to how things are. I'd like to share a teaching from Ajahn Chah, who's a Thai forest monk, 
probably many of you have heard of him. Um, he said, we are practicing to reach the old mind, this original mind, which is unconditioned. In it there is no good or bad, long or short, black or white. But we are not content to remain with this mind because we don't look at and understand things clearly. The nature of the original mind is unwavering. It is tranquil. We are not tranquil because we are excited over sense objects and we end up as slaves to the changing mental states that result. So practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state, the old thing. It is finding our old home, the original mind that does not waver and change following various phenomena. It is by nature perfectly peaceful. It is something that is already within us. Really practicing to discover that which is already within us and simply unrecognized. Unrecognized because we get lost, identified, confused with all of the experiences that arise through the sense doors. We aren't able to see them for what they are. We take them to be something they're not. As we practice, we work with stabilizing the attention, being present to our experience moment by moment, allowing things to be as they are, It's really interesting that we practice to know truth. We practice to see truth. And yet, when we're having an experience we don't like, we think we need to get rid of it, and then the obstacle will be removed and will be able to see truth. Instead of seeing the truth as it is right now. If we can allow our experience to be as it is, not needing a different experience. This is Dhamma. This is where understanding can come. 
but we have so many filters that we so often see experience through. Filters of ideas, beliefs, views, judgments. You know, as we sit in meditation, we get very confronted by what we think meditation should look like, how things should be, how it should be unfolding. And their ideas, concepts, beliefs. What if we practice with just what is? I think it makes it a whole lot simpler. Don't need anything else. We work with what is. And that will change moment by moment due to the truth of impermanence. But it's life speaking to us. It's truth revealing itself. And, you know, of course it doesn't mean that suddenly we really understand that. But the more that we can just relax with the simple recognition of what the mind is knowing right now, it gives way or it it brings about a spaciousness where insight can arise. And this is insight meditation. And, you know, this insight is where, for a moment, something is seen in a whole new way. It's broken through the concept, the idea of how we think things are. And we've seen into the nature of experience. These moments of insight can have a profound effect upon our lives. And, you know, they can really be simple moments. I mean, often when um, a yogi comes in and expresses something of an insight, the, it, it will they'll begin by saying, I know this is obvious. Because these insights on one level are very simple. But because in our day-to-day experience of life, we don't really, we don't really let the truth of impermanence be known. And yet when we have a moment where maybe you've been with the breath and there was the in-breath and the out-breath, and then the outbreath disappeared, and it was just gone. And it was like just the scene. It was gone. And that was earth shattering. I mean, it, it was just amazing, awesome. It touched something, 
something was understood. And yet, you know, you tell somebody out in the world about <laughs> this great insight you had. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like much. And yet those moments really help to uproot the tendency to cling, to grasp. We begin to see, understand. It infor- helps us to live from the truth of the understanding of impermanence. These insights dispel the darkness of ignorance. Moments where things are seen as they are with the light of wisdom. And there's nothing we can make happen. It comes about through this continuity of mindfulness. The simple recognition of what's being known. piece of the preciousness of this human birth is that we do have the capacity to know truth. And that we also have had beings before us that have taken this journey of awakening. The Buddha, having taken this journey, was able to point the way, point towards what is helpful to wake up, what is a helpful way to turn the mind, to be able to see through the veil of ignorance. He laid this out very clearly in the Noble Eightfold Path. Probably most, all of you are familiar to some degree with the Eightfold Path, where we have the trainings of uh, Panya, wisdom, Sila, virtue, and samadhi, um, bhavana, the training of the mind. There's something quite interesting in that he began this path with that of wisdom, that of understanding that, you know, in our minds, 
we often think of the culmination of the practice that we do as being wisdom. But that there is also a level where wisdom needs to be there to even begin the journey. There's a couple of ways that this is true. That on some level, we need to have a sense of possibility or we wouldn't begin the journey. There needs to be a sense of faith, some inkling, some intuitive sense that we are just not the sum total of these habituated ways we have of relating to life, that there is within us a pull of the heart towards wisdom. This is something that grows as we practice, that becomes strengthened into confidence as we discover for ourselves what frees the minds, as we experience or have understanding that comes from insight. And it culminates in the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So there needs to be within us, in order to start this journey, some sense of possibility. But there also needs to be some context. There needs to be a direction, which, you know, the the Buddha, you know, I often see him as being this being just sitting on the top of the mountain and, you know, we, whatever, being around the bottom of the mountain and having a sense that it's possible to get to the top of the mountain. But he's he's been on the bottom of the mountain himself and has been able to gain the view from the top of the mountain. And that from that perspective, he was able to point towards, to, you know, he could view the terrain of the whole mountain and point towards a skillful way to come to the top. He could verify that this sense of possibility that we have is true and is realizable. And that he could give helpful pointers towards what would help us to know for ourselves the view from the top of that mountain. It's very much like when we're given a map 
we can't take the journey by simply looking at the map. We will have to take the journey for ourselves. But having that map makes a huge difference. You know, just where we're sitting here right now in central Massachusetts, there are so many back roads around here. And if you decide you're just going to go from here to Worcester and you have no map, you, you know, you could go round and round and round in circles and maybe one day you would happen upon Worcester. (laughs) But if you have a map that gives bearings, that gives indicators, it's really useful. And so he laid out this map, what's helpful on this journey of awakening. And this journey beginning with what he called right view or wise view. Often in our views, they aren't wise. They're really based upon opinions and beliefs. They're colored, tainted by greed, hatred, delusion, not seen clearly. The Buddha said, pointed this out. He said that, and this is not his words, <laughs> but just to pointed towards that the mind veiled in ignorance, the mind that is bound by habit, has distorted perceptions. He said there was three levels of distortion. There's distortion of perception, distortion of thoughts, and distortion of views. With distortion of perception, this is, becomes easy to see in simple ways in our lives. That you know, often the, the, you know you just catch something out of the corner of your eye, and you think it's something it's not. Say you're out walking at night on the trails around here. You see a twig, and you think it's a snake. You see it a rock and you think it's a crouching animal. That without the capacity to let the mind rest and know something as it is, we will only be seeing things on the surface. We'll be seeing it within the level of concept. And it will often be misperceived. And yet, we'll live as if it's true. 
I was once on a retreat in Burma, and I was sharing a room with a nun, and it was a very tiny room. And it was so tiny that if I was getting dressed at the same time she was wanted to go to the bathroom, I'd have to move out of her way. And so this happened this one morning, and so she, you know, I moved out of her way. She went into the bathroom, and I, you know, was just very focused on what I was doing, being as mindful as I could. Um, and then uh, suddenly, there was the scene of something. That scene triggered fear. In the next moment, there was the scene of a bald head. And the next thought was, it's an alien. And, you know, and then in the next moment, there was the scene of my friend. <laughs> but, you know, just the, that in that first moment of perception, it was construed to be something than other than what it was. In our lives, we often misconstrue perceptions and then live as if what we're seeing is the truth. this misperception of thoughts. This is something that is very easy to see on retreat. We may all be very familiar with what's called yogi mind, where we can sit here and we make up stories about anything, everything. Um, Commonly, we'll make up stories about our neighbors, the people around us that people will behave, will see certain behaviors, and we can make up a whole story of why that person is the way they are, how they are. And, you know, that person becomes very solidified in our mind. We believe it to be true, and then maybe have the opportunity to speak with them. And just as soon as they open their mouth, we realized it wasn't true. We believe the thoughts, and they're based on misperception. I had a friend who was on retreat and encountered what commonly gets called Vipassana romance. She became attracted to this man, and it seemed that you know they would sit at the same table for their meals, and she described how there was such a strong energy that was present. You know, the, the, you know, the energy between them was just electric. And, you know, she said he'd walk by her when she was getting a cup of tea, and it would just be like this vibe between them. And then it would happen that they would do yoga at the same time. And then she went outside one day, and he went outside after her. You know, <laughs> and then it happened that he left the retreat before it ended, and she was <laughs> abandoned. But at the end of the retreat, she managed to track him down. She called him up. <laughs> she described who she was, and he said, "Well, I vaguely remember you." <laughs> And she just saw how she had so believed these thoughts, created this whole world out of them that was misconstrued. 
So sitting on retreat, it's really a great place to see the power, the tendency we have to give power to these thoughts when they can be based on untruth, not seeing clearly. And, you know, and we sit here and we just see what the mind can churn up. And in our lives, when we don't pay attention, we believe them to be true. And then what happens is those thoughts solidify into views. And views, we can easily know how attachment to views creates wars. What happens when we are identified with those views? Believe them to be the truth. And they were based on this whole layering of misperception. And because of these distortions, we suffer. Because of not seeing clearly. The Buddha talked about there being two levels to deepening understanding of right view. Right view being that which is in accordance with the way of things, where the view is not distorted. There's the, uh, on the mundane level, there's paying attention to the law of karma cause and effect. And I know Patricia also spoke about this in her last talk, or in her only talk so far. (laughs) Um, So I'm not going to go into it in depth. But it's really by the paying attention, the deepening our own understanding of how what we do, what we say, what motivates us has an effect is a way that seeds are planted. You know, the Buddha said, what we turn our minds towards is what we will bear the fruits of. And through a steadiness of attention, through having interest in what's arising in our experience, we begin to understand this for ourselves. It's easy to see the effect of unwholesome actions of the past on retreat. A common experience of it is that we sit down, a memory arises, and there's torment, there's despair, there's regret. 
we can right there feel the effect of what we've done. Not that we need to move into blame, but it's a way that we can really understand cause and effect. When we have a moment of loving kindness in the mind, there's an effect that can be right in that moment. You know, we feel the buoyancy of the mind. We feel the open-heartedness of the mind. When we start understanding karma on a deepening level, it calls us into taking responsibility. It calls us into recognizing the need for practice, the need to pay attention, the need to be able to see this law. It helps us then in moments where there may be a ripening of unwholesome karma, um, where you you can't look at it just in the simple form of uh, of, um, in a moment where, you know, maybe somebody comes and just dumps their anger on us. You know, we may have been having a perfectly wonderful day and then suddenly someone just vents their anger it may not be obvious why that happened in that moment. You know, that, that, that can be a level of complexity of karma that we can't see. But if in that moment we have some understanding that what we can do right there is instead of perpetuating the motion or the habit of anger and responding with anger, we can simply bear witness, be present, where we don't let the seed of anger be nourished within us. We don't feed a response of anger. Or it may arise, anger, you know, somebody's angry with us, anger arises with us, but then rather than acting out of it, we just simply see it. We see it as it is, in its nature. And don't fuel it. Don't fan the flame of that anger. Because we have the understanding that if we do that, if we keep perpetuating that, it's going to lead to deep deepening of suffering rather than wisdom. It really, understanding the law of karma helps us to take our seat in life to not be a victim, but to use, and this goes back to what I was saying in the beginning of the talk, to use whatever the unfolding is to learn from, to see it as it is. When we understand karma, we understand that things are unfolding according to natural law. And so that means that we can 
surrender to what is. That we can use what is happening to understand Dhamma, the way of things. The understanding of cause and effect, the law of karma, helps us to plant wholesome seeds, seeds that move our lives in the direction of the alleviation of suffering. The second level of right view is where there is our own realization of the Four Noble Truths. This is where there is a deep understanding of suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way leading to the end of suffering. path of wisdom, deepening, understanding. It calls upon us. It's not something we can do from complacency because the habits are too strong, the misperceptions. But as we pay attention to where the entanglement is, we begin to see for ourselves the grasping, the clinging, the identification. We begin to see that it isn't about this having things be perfect, but a simple shift in perception that 
allows things to be seen as they really are. It's the journey of calling forth wisdom, a wisdom that is not personal, does not belong to us, a wisdom that comes in three levels, the level of having information, the context, the instruction, you know, the Buddhist teachings, there's the application of that information by way of our own intelligence, the learning how to practice, the learning how to pay attention in a skillful way. And then there's the intuitive awareness, the understanding that comes through that application. I'd like to close with a teaching from Sayadaw Utejaniya. He says, once you truly understand the benefits of the practice, you will never stop practicing. You will always keep going wherever you are. When you are really able to apply the Dharma in your life and start seeing the difference it makes, then the qualities of the Dharma will become obvious. The qualities of the Dharma will come alive for you they will become meaningful meaningful to you. So we keep going on this exploration of the way things are, seeing things just as they are. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.